0: Good morning, everybody. I'm Philippa, and I'm reading from James 5, verses 1 to 6. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth eaten Your gold and silver are corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mow their fields which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned. You have murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Thanks, Philippa. So... This is why you come to church. Hey, for spicy messages like this one. How about that language? hey, eat your flesh like fire, and um, crying out against you. There's a lot going on in that passage, and uh, James is—he's uh, getting really excited about it. Happy birthday, Shireen! And um, maybe before I do get stuck into this, and maybe it's just me delaying the inevitable of a interesting text. Men, can I just look you in the eyes, Mark? Thanks for reminding us about the men's event. Um, I just felt like, as I was listening to that uh, announcement, um, sometimes you just get announcements. And announcements just fly over your head. You go, oh, cool, I'm sure some guys are going to pitch up, have a lot of fun. And um, as I was reflecting on that announcement and the significance of what it means to uh, really grow as a follower of Jesus and to really grow as a person, I just thought of this men's night. We have one night a year where we as men get away, we ask some really important questions of what it means to be a man and to uh, follow Jesus well and to uh, really grow into maturity. And these can be such catalytic times. And so I'm looking at you men, I'm going, uh, if you're new to our community, you're welcome. If you've been coming for a while, I want to suggest that you do everything you can to block off everything else that's going on and to just get there. We have seen so many times, it's not magic. There's nothing uh, super amazing. We literally do tan a few chops on the evening, have a bit of a chat in the morning, and, uh, and you know, camp. But what happens in the friendships and what happens in the conversation can literally be life-altering. And I uh, really want to ask you, commend you. You go, oh, camping's not my vibe. Boy, cheese away isn't my vibe. This is a bunch of dudes who are really ordinary, just like all of us, And I just want to commend you to please prioritize that time. I think it's going to be a significant time for us as men. Sound good? Let's do it. So, enough delaying tactics. Let's look at this amazing passage about weeping and wailing and flesh crying out. Who is James speaking to? If we could put the passage up, I'm going to leave the passage up basically for the rest of our time. Listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. This is very intense language. This is language that actually goes back to uh, the prophets of the Old Testament. And James is writing like an Old Testament prophet. He's using that kind of language, and they call it apocalyptic literature. Remember, Voldu preached a few weeks ago in the the New Testament, there isn't really much apocalyptic type literature. So, should I give my tongue a break and you practice it? Say to the person next to you, apocalyptic. Thank you. My tongue is now warmed up and ready to go. Apocalyptic literature is language, it's, it's a type of literature that is talking about the, the end, the way things are going to end, and what's going to happen in between. And James is writing this language, but if you remember last week, James has been in an interesting conversation with his reader, his listener, as they're going through this letter, and he speaks to the church in the end of chapter four, and he says, "'Come now.'" You could feel the urgency in his voice, he goes, "'Come now, guys.'" You who say, let's go to this city and make some cash and then let's go to the next one and you think life is all about you and earning money and just making, you know, your your own pockets filled with cash and and making your own lives happy and making sure that your kids are in the right schools and and you're just doing everything about you and lining up your picket fences. He's going, careful, there's a better way to live. And then he basically carries on and now he looks at, at, at almost like he turns the corner and he begins to get even more intense. Now, I want to start and give you a bit of a relief, and everyone needs a bit of a relief when you read a passage as hectic and terrifying as this one, because the big question that needs to be asked here is, who is James writing to? Who's he writing to? If you're new to the Bible, you're new to church, one of the best questions you can ever ask yourself when you open the Bible is, what is this person saying and who were they trying to say it to originally? It's the best question you can ever ask when you start reading the Bible because if you don't understand the context and you don't understand who they're writing to, you can totally misunderstand what's being said and that's happened for a lot of history in that people have misunderstood what the Bible's trying to say and then they make all kinds of wacky applications and they hurt people and themselves. And here, this is probably one of the most important times to ask, who is James addressing? Well, it's pretty straightforward, right? He says, now listen, you rich people. So he's writing to rich people. So we got that tick. We know he's writing to rich people. But what kind of rich people? And this is probably the most important thing. Most theologians and commentators on this passage agree that he is not writing to Christians here. He's not writing to the church. He is writing this to wealthy, oppressive people who have been using their economic power, and he's writing to them for the church. That's interesting, and it's important. I need you to listen to this, because if you don't get this, you're gonna miss out on how crucial this passage is. He's writing to wealthy, oppressive, corrupt people so that they can understand what's coming their way, and in a sense, for the sake of the comfort of this very largely poor church who are struggling. There are some rich people in this church, don't get me wrong, he writes to the rich people, but there's enough evidence here to say that there is no grace for these people. There's no; They're, they're condemned. He would never write that to Christians themselves. Christians aren't condemned. Christians are, are in the grace of God. If you're a follower of Jesus, you put your trust in Him. By grace, you stand before the, 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 the Savior, not because of your own works, but because of uh, Jesus' work on your behalf. James would never say to a bunch of Christians, you, have, uh, you are, are condemned. You will be judged on that final day, and you will burn like f- your flesh will burn like fire. He would never say that. He's writing to a bunch of people who have been utilizing their wealth in a really unhelpful way. And I don't know if you picked up some of that legal court language. It's all over the show. I've got a few uh, bolds if you go to the next slide. Look at the language like testify. Testify is court language. James has has got his, uh, his audience in a court, and he's writing to these oppressive, economically oppressive wealthy people. Um, and it was quite common in the day. In the Judean landscape, there were these very few wealthy people who basically would... Uh, use the loopholes of the, the governmental system to gain more and more land and take land from people, the small land, and then they would gather these huge growing empires of land and then they would make those people work the land for them and they would pay them a wage just once a day if they were lucky to do the work on their land. And it was a very oppressive system. It harkens back to our version of apartheid in the sense of just huge amounts of land being taken and then a little bit of uh, money given for some cheap labor that got uh, provided. And this was happening, this is fact in, in the sort of known world across Judea in the first century. And James now looks at these people and he writes to them Because he knows that this church are filled with people who are suffering under this very unjust system. If you're listening, there's going to be two types of ways we're going to listen to this, this passage. The first one, we're going to take heed. Because all of us have to steward some level of wealth. And then the second part, I'm going to talk about taking heart. Because all of us actually have to live in some version of corrupt society where we too sometimes feel like we're under the oppressive realities of corruption, where our tax money doesn't go where we hope it would go, and things don't work out exactly how we hope they would work out. And so James has wisdom for both here. He's going to say, take heed, listen carefully. And then secondly, he's going to say, take heart. I want to help you if you're feeling uh, like you're struggling through this. And so firstly, let's just look at... uh, uh, you know, firstly, I suppose the question would be asked: is, is is wealth a problem? Is James condemning everyone who's wealthy? The answer is absolutely not. James uh, regularly uh, addresses wealthy people. He says, "Come now, you rich." He talks to the rich people sometimes, and he helps people to steward their finances. So he's not flat out condemning people who who make money and who are wealthy. So uh, I read this. It says, who's James getting to in this passage? Most Bible scholars agree that James is, in fact, condemning wealthy, non-believing landowners. He offers them no exhortation to repent or change because he's, in fact, writing to the poor, whom they are oppressing. They're being condemned not for being wealthy. This is not a critique of capitalism. Being rich is not a sin. Rather, for their misuse of their wealth. The issue is what they are doing and not doing with the wealth and power that they are given. I suppose we could possibly breathe a kind of sigh of relief there. He's not writing to you if you get a big paycheck at the end of the month. But he is if you're not using it well. He is if you're not using it well, if you're using it for the means that he talks about later. Let me say it again uh, by another theologian. What can be said about the rich in this passage, however, is that they they are condemned not simply for their wealth, they are condemned for their sinful use of their wealth. And like every address to wealthy people in power, they often never get heard. Hey, you speak, of, how often we, we want to address the, the wealthy in society, the corrupt, and, and want to get an audience, but by the time it gets to them, it's been, it's been filtered by, their, by others, it never really gets there. You know, sometimes we hear those open letters, you know. But how often do you think the wealthy really read those open letters? And, and, and how often they're probably surrounded by a bunch of people who say, oh, don't listen to that, sir. Don't listen to that, ma'am. That stuff's rubbish. And by the time they read their open letter, their consciences are cleared and they've moved on. Now, anybody watch Sing 2? Come on. Only shall. Sing Sing 2. Charles, you and I, let's have a little date and we can watch it together. Sing 2 has this uh, really wealthy guy named Mr. Crystal. And Mr. Crystal is this like a uh, wolf type character and he is uh, the super wealthy, oppressive, corrupt guy who gets his own way. And uh, he talks to his little uh, PA and he talks to him in, in, in a very uh, derogatory, patronizing way. And basically he says to Jerry, he says, Jerry, if you get an opportunity to say yes to me, You take it. And uh, that's often the way the wealthy and the corrupt live. They surround themselves with yes people. And any challenge or or words of, of pushback never really reach their ears. And if they do, they've filtered it out and their consciences have cleared themselves from ever needing to face it. And James is writing, in a sense, probably blissfully unaware that 2,000 years later, his literature would be penned into Scripture. And actually, many of the wealthy in society have been shaped by James's words. And that there is a conscience for the wealthy in 2,000 years later because of passages just like this one. So James seems to highlight four misuses. Let's take heed of four misuses of wealth that we could listen to, and then we will take heart from what else he's saying. So firstly, take heed of this misuse, of hoarding treasure for yourself rather than helping. James seems to look at the wealthy oppressive, and he says, "'Your wealth has rotted, and moths have eaten your clothes. "'Your gold and silver are corroded.'" The corrosion, their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. So he looks at these wealthy people and he says, you know what? Your wealth has become a kind of uh, testament against you. And the corrosion is a metaphor. He's saying you've got so much that you don't even know how to look after it. Your closet is brimming with stuff. Everybody who, who says, I'm struggling with space. There's never enough storage. Hey, this is James. He's writing to us. He says, there's just never enough space to store all the stuff. He's writing to people who love hoarding. We live in a world, and I run past one of them, store Age. Who knows store Age Up at the top of Sunningdale there. It's a, it's a growing building, and it's a growing business around the world to create storage space for all our stuff. And James says, be careful. Be careful that you don't store up more and more stuff because it's rotting and it's mouth eatenness is actually a testament against you, that you're just storing stuff without any sense of usefulness. You're trying to hoard treasure for yourself without helping others. He says, be careful of that. Now remember, the audience isn't actually the Christians, but they would be, they would be listening and going, oh, I've got something to learn from this. I've got something to learn. Farouk Hussein tweeted this as he noted Queen Elizabeth's um, uh, funeral service. He says, At the funeral service of late Queen Elizabeth, the late Queen Elizabeth, towards the end of the service, I was touched by the Archbishop's last words before the body was taken to the grave for burial. He said, Now let us remove all symbols of power from the coffin so that our sister Elizabeth can be committed to the grave as a simple Christian. Immediately, the staff of office was removed, then the scepter, the crown followed, and all valuables were removed. The queen was buried with nothing. Notice that the archbishop did not include queen to her name at this point. He carries on and he writes, he says, Life is vanity, it's transient, and that teaches us humility. Humility and power, humility and relating with others, humility in our acquisition of wealth and humility in our endeavors, because in the end, we will all go back with nothing. Wow, our sister Elizabeth, isn't it wonderful how much she owned? She she probably had the most power and wealth of, of many people. And yet our sister Elizabeth had everything taken from her and she went to the dust like all of us will. It's a, it's a wonderful reminder to ensure that we're not hoarding rather than trying to help with what we've got. Secondly, hurting rather than helping our poor employees. Listen to verse 4. He carries on and he says, The wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. Remember the context I'm speaking about here is these wealthy Judean leaders who are gathering increasing levels of wealth and land and are getting the people to come and work on their land. And if they're lucky, they get their wages at the end of the day. And basically wages meant your livelihood. You would come home and you would buy something on the way home to feed the family. And these guys weren't even always paying their workers on time. And if they were paying them, often weren't paying them enough. I don't know how often you find yourself just a little annoyed because you didn't quite get the service delivery you wanted. And you find yourself looking at some workers and you're going, oh, I can't believe they're so tired or, or not pitching up or not doing things right. Or, oh my gosh, another day, the trains are down, now my life and I've got to wait, la, 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 la. We all know the story. We lose empathy for the fact that these trains and these situations are, are so different and are so important to empathize with we find ourselves quite quickly getting ourselves as the center of the world rather than going, how can I help? How can I help? heard of a story of a a car dealership who uh, began to do a little bit of a deep dive into the sales statistics of how things were working in their car dealerships. And what they discovered was that wealthy people who were educated would come in and they would work out how to get the best price possible. The wealthy educated would come in and they would bargain the salesman down to the very last cent. However, the poor uneducated wouldn't. They would come in and unfortunately just didn't have the bargaining power and would basically take whatever price was given them. And this owner of this car dealership, there was probably caught in a, uh, between a rock and a hard place because part of him is going, well, this is an easy market. We just sell them the highest price and they buy it. But he had a conscience. And he basically changed the rules. He said, we're not doing any of those extra deals. Because if we do, what ends up happening is the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. It's done. He had a huge revolt from all the salesmen. They said, that's how we make our money. He said, too bad. Too bad. We're not exploiting the poor for the sake of uh, uh, making the rich just a little richer. And they just ended it. All their cars were at the same price. And it was just a choice he made. Hey, if you look on uh, your broadcast list, this is why it's valuable. We've just sent you a link to work out how to uh, essentially understand what a living wage is. You see, there's so much talk about what's the minimum wage and how, you know, how much is enough to pay an employee. I think as followers of Jesus and as we look at James, it's probably the wrong question to ask. Not how much is enough but what can we do to really love every employee that we get? And so if you want to do that, you can take a look in and there's a devotional there as well that's attached to it and you can just begin to submerge yourself in what does it really mean to love our employees, whether it's a domestic worker, whether it's somebody in part of your business, to really take some thoughtful care around how do we honestly, before Jesus, love every employee, every person who we get to uh, interact with and and employ. Thirdly, James says, take heed. Take heed of excessive self-indulgence. You've lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You've fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You've fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. Basically, what he's saying is, you just keep taking on more and more pleasure. You're a pleasure junkies. And that pleasure uh, hunger has basically blinded you to the facts of this world. You, you've lost the joy of, of life in the kingdom and, and, and doing what Jesus would call you to do. And these wealthy people, of course, they, they, they wouldn't have the joy of the kingdom because they, they've not known Jesus yet. But the point is, is they've, they've, they're totally self-indulgent. I, uh, Nix and I started watching this by sheer coincidence last night. It's called Steinheist. Has anybody started watching that? It's all about the Steinhoff. Um, uh, yeah, I can imagine. You, you were kind of in Stellenbosch around the, the time of all of that. And anyway. Um, uh, Marcus Joerster was this massive CEO of Steinhoff, and it was this fast-growing entity, and uh, basically there was a whole bunch of corruption and lies that brought one of the biggest businesses in South Africa to its knees, and it didn't just cost uh, some wealthy people a lot of money. It cost, some, uh, it cost an economy a lot, and it cost a lot of poor people a lot of jobs. And, and it's, it's fascinating to see the excessive self-indulgence that can blind people to the effects of the decisions that they make in their lives. And it would be good for us sometimes to, to take heed of this. I don't know if you know uh, what, there's two things. If you walk into a casino, there's two things that you will never find there. What are they? Windows and clocks. Clocks. Windows and clocks, you will never find in any casino a window or a clock. Why? Because everything in a, a casino is designed to blind you to the real world out there, to pretend that it's not actually happening, so that every click you make, every time you pull, every chip you push across the table is in a, in a totally different world. You're blinded to the fact that there are people out there that need things, that, that you've actually got responsibilities and, and stuff to do with your life. And that's exactly what excessive wealth and comfort can do and self-indulgence. It, it blinds you to the facts of what's really happening in the world. And sometimes we can even, in our simple wealth, I don't, wouldn't say anybody here is probably excessively wealthy, but we can get tunnel vision for the stuff we want. And that's all we see is, I want to get that. I want to acquire that. And we lose a sense of love and, and a sense of, and we get blinded to the, the other needs around us. Finally, he says, we tend to value our own lives over the, poor, over the lives of the poor. In verse, he says, You've, you have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. You've condemned and murdered the innocent one who is not opposing you. Some commentators speculate, is that talking about Jesus? And the answer is no, he's not talking about Jesus. He's talking about the, the poor, the, that the corrupt and oppressive have, have condemned. They've basically, um, they, they, they've put a death sentence over them. they put a death sentence over them. And sometimes there's this white-collar crime that's created. And people don't realize that the knock-on effect at the end of the day is that there isn't food on the table. And that there is actually, at the end of all of that selfishness, a whole bunch of pain and even potentially loss of life. There's a sense of real pain that can be caused. And I just uh, wondered if we could, as a church, just sometimes take a deep breath and and go, okay, I'm, I'm not here to condemn us because I don't think that there are super corrupt people in this community. But I do wonder, before we take heart, If we could just find ourselves, if we look back on James who's saying, hey, you who say you're going to go to this city and do that, and you're going to try this and the next thing, that we'd slow down and go, where did Jesus find himself? Where were the places that Jesus always tended to be? As you you read Jesus, it seems like he was with the poor. He was with the broken. He was with the diseased. He always found himself on that redemptive edge, as John Tyson calls it, the place of where, where darkness and light were, were meeting each other at the sharp precipice. There was something going on in the life of Jesus that was always on the edge. And it's amazing how many people are trying to rid themselves of that space. I heard a story of a guy who, um, who's basically realized that in the townships, the safest place to be is a Shabeen. Yep, you heard it. The safest place to be, especially in the afternoons, where security is the highest, is a Shabeen. So, this young entrepreneur, who is not trying to make money out of this, is dreaming up a dream, where before everyone gets, uh, you know, finishes work and starts drinking, that instead, between two and five o'clock, the Shabeens are homework spaces. What a thought. What a dreamer. What an amazing opportunist who's looking at the country and who's looking at people's lives and going, oh my gosh, how do I take the safest place and how do I provide free internet so that people can actually learn and grow? And he's dreaming into the space and he's thinking because he's finding himself in the redemptive edge. He's going, where would Jesus find himself? What is Jesus up to in the world? You know, it's so easy to to dream up another country and to find yourself in another space, but maybe this is exactly where Jesus wants us. I wonder if maybe for a moment we would just close our eyes and just ask the Holy Spirit to give us eyes to see what He sees in our nation. I'm so inspired by that story. It, It may never work, putting kids in a shabeen in the afternoon, But I wonder if that kind of creativity isn't what the Holy Spirit wants to breathe upon us, to help the hurting, to use our creativity, to use our education, to use our means to turn what looks like a problem into a possible solution that could bring flourishing. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would help us, that you'd break our hearts even now for the plight of the poor, for the problems that many face. And instead of trying to run away, to utilize something of our ingenuity, our creativity, to bring about some sort of help and some sort of flourishing. God, I pray even if it's us getting on board with other great ideas, I pray that you would help us as a church, Common Ground Bloberg, to become part increasingly of the solution, to become part of living on that redemptive edge, on that sharp place, where light is cutting into darkness, where grace and transformation, where healing and flourishing is coming about, where shabins are being turned into places of shining light in Jesus' name. It's a cool thought, isn't it? I wonder if we could dream some of those dreams and begin to create little hubs, create spaces where we could start to think as a church What could we be doing? What if if we spent all the energy (laughs) that we're dreaming about other spaces and we turned that energy and said, instead of dreaming about my place that I could live, what about using that energy to dream of making a safer space for people around us? I know it's hard, and I know life in South Africa is not uncomplicated. So take heart. Take heart. James is writing this primarily because he wants his listener to take heart. Yes, there's a lot we can learn. Yes, we should be careful what we do with our wealth. Many of us can't even relate to how much wealth those people had. But many of us in this space in South Africa and around the world do feel the effects of corruption, of the victimhood of what's happened in our world. There is some real stories to each of our lives where we could go, this is just not right Whether it's the simplicity of just wishing that your tax money was being used fairly or whether it is the individual stories of the fact that where you've grown up or what you've been through is a clear product of unfair and corrupt leadership, whatever it may be. We live in a world where we find ourselves looking, going, it shouldn't be like this. And there's two things that'll damage you if you're a victim of injustice, whether it's direct or indirect. Firstly the injustice that you suffer, it'll damage you, it, it really hurts. And secondly, the bitterness that you experience thereafter. Those two things are like two fists that continue to punch you. The, the pain of the injustice and then the bitterness that continues, and they continue to follow you. And there's really only three options, I think, to deal with it. Either we, we plead for revenge We long to get back at whatever, whether it's subtle or it's not so subtle, we just long for revenge, whether it's on the the group who did it, whether it's on the individual who did it, we long for revenge to get back, whether it's uh, in any way possible. Or the other option that many people try is let's just forget about it, just can't. You can't, you know, men in black, you can't just get the, the thing that just takes your memory away and you forget that never ever happened. That's not how we made. We can't forget about it. The third option is passive aggressive. You know, I, I'm just going to leave. Just get out of here. And then I'll keep checking out to make sure that that thing implodes. Just hope that eventually it falls apart and I won't be there. All I'll do is I'll say, I told you so. I knew. And, and we'll just keep checking. Whatever it is, whether it's a person, a place, a country, whatever it is, play the passive-aggressive and just hope that it falls apart. Hope that it implodes. James has another option. James says neither of those are going to work. They are just going to increase your bitterness, and they're going to make you worse off. James has this amazing solve, which is something that I think Christians tend to kind of look at with a bit of a kind of nervousness. It's called Judgment Day. It's called Judgment Day. And James shamelessly walks towards Judgment Day, and he writes without any fear, and he says, this is your only solution. This is where you take heart. John Dixon says, Judgment Day is frequently proclaimed as a promise from a loving God to his wounded people that he will one day reverse their fortunes and bring justice to the world. The day of judgment is not a day to feel embarrassed about it's a it is God's day of justice and compassion. It's coming, he says. Pitzkero says we don't live for the future, but we live from the future. You see, as a follower of Jesus, and I look to you as a follower of Jesus, this, if you're not a follower of Christ, I've, I've got a, a word for you. But for now, if you, if you say, Christ, I, I believe you, I trust you, I, I've given you my heart, then, then there is no better comfort than to know that actually you can take heart from the fact that He's coming back. And that all of this brokenness, that all of this injustice, all of this stuff will be made right, and your bitterness and your pain can be healed And there is a sense that Christ will make it all right. Remember, James has put these people in a courtroom. He's used all this court language of condemnation and and conviction. And and he's basically said, the the, the verdict here is guilty. The judge has proclaimed it. This this, uh, listener, this wealthy person is guilty. Here's the problem. As we think of Judgment Day and as we listen to that, There's a part of all of us that goes, eek, let's get honest. No, I'm not a wealthy, oppressive person who has, you know, more money than I can imagine, who can, you know, get the ear of of world leaders and I can try to manipulate situations. But if I'm honest, I love stuff sometimes more than I should. And if I'm honest, I tend to wish just that poverty was out and I could just live a little less complicated life. And if I'm honest, there's stuff in my heart that just doesn't always bleed with love and compassion towards the poor, and my heart actually isn't as good as I wish it was. And I think it would be fair for us to say that none of us have got it all right, and that judgment day is a day that we will all face some level of honesty. So what do we do? What do we do? Well, we know what's going to happen to the wealthy, corrupt, oppressive who don't know Christ. There is something coming that is terrifying, that they should take heed of, that they should repent of. They need to turn to Christ. And, and they need to get what 1 John chapter 2 says we all need to get. He says, my dear children, how compassionate is John. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. None of us wants to do that stuff. No one wants to oppress. No one wants to love uh, wealth and possessions more than we should. He says, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. An advocate, it's our lawyer. He stands on our behalf and he says, yes, I know they're guilty. Yes, I know what they've done. Yes, I know all the stuff they've done. I was there, I was with them. I watched it. One of them betrayed me. The other one, he just at, at my time of deepest need, he, he ignored me and he pretended that I wasn't real. The others all scattered, just like every other human being. They're just unbelievably fickle and they don't love as they should. But But I'm the advocate, says Jesus. And I went and I took the punishment that they should have. And now he stands on our behalf and he pleads our case and he says, don't look at them because they're guilty. Look at me because I'm not. I'm innocent. And I stand on their behalf and I plead their case over and over and over. And not only for our sins, but also for the sins of the world. Today's an invitation. Today's an invitation, yes, to take heed. What do we do with our wealth is pretty crucial. It's not a call to give money to the church. This is a call to look at our lives and our hearts and go, what do we do with our wealth? How do we steward it for the glory of God? How do we invite the Holy Spirit to turn us into a creative people for the glory of God and the good of our city? I think there's some dreams sitting in some of our hearts right here. And that God is saying, yes, you can dream that dream. Yes, there is a growing, burgeoning uh, place called Danoon just on our doorstep. What are we gonna do? Are we gonna... Try to drive the other route. Or we're going to ask God for some creativity to say, teach us to love. How do we turn this into opportunities for redemption and grace? But firstly, we need to know that we're right with God. That we're in that space of knowing His grace. And so I'd ask you to stand with me. We're going to pray together. The band are going to join us. and we're going to do it. Slightly participatively, because I feel like as I've been speaking, maybe you want to close your eyes just to stay focused. As I've been speaking, and I think especially around the burdens for South Africa, some of us have felt just a fresh conviction. Actually, post COVID, I maybe haven't engaged, I've lost my nerve. I, I, there's so much I want to do for the glory of God and for the good of our nation. And I'm one of those, to be honest with you. I, I, I found our lost momentum. There was a sense of some good stuff going on in Danoon. And I'm putting up my hand in a moment because I want to pray with those of us who feel God's called us to a fresh creativity in loving the poor, in bringing redemptive light into places, not necessarily that are dark, but are in places of desperate need. And I want to pray for you. If that's you, you're just saying, God's got my number and I, I've got to re-engage. Why not you pop up your hand just as a way of saying, I'm in, I'm, I'm just, I need prayer. I want to say yes. Beautiful. Beautiful. Thank you, Lord. Yeah. So much opportunity to bring the light and the love of Christ. God, for those of us who are popping up our hands saying, Here we are in this nation, in this time. Help us to see with your eyes. I pray that you would give us your eyes to see. You'd give us eyes to see the needs and the opportunities. God, I pray that we wouldn't be intimidated by the giants, and I pray we wouldn't be intimidated by the complex things that some are doing. I pray that all of us, in a sense, would just see that our lifestyles can be the first place to start but that some of us would have fresh ideas begin to birth. Got a sense that some people with tech and logical know-how, you're gonna be useful for the glory of God and the good of the poor. That you're sitting on information and knowledge that can serve people, that em- can empower education. Some people with social Welfare, understanding. I don't normally put people on the spot. I'm gonna put the birthday girl on the spot. And Shireen, I believe, woke up this morning, I know it was your birthday, but I believe God was saying that you're going to freshly pioneer some stuff in the area of equality, injustice, serving the poor, God, I pray for Shireen on her birthday. God, that today, more than just having a great day and feeling loved, she would have a a fresh sense of your empowering spirit, helping her to see with your eyes things that not only she needs to see, but that we need to see. That we would become a people who love Jesus like you love and move to places that you would have us go that we would leverage every piece of our influence and our capacity to serve each other and to serve beyond. Some of us, I just felt like God wanting to minister to because you're, you have felt the pains of life in an unjust society. You feel, you're not praying for things, you're going, I just feel broken and burdened and in pain by this. Jesus knows your pain, but he also says that as the church, we want to walk with you in your pain. And we stand with you today, but we also invite you to share your pain with us. Whether it's after this and you share your story with your life group leader and get someone to pray. We've got a group of people who'd love to pray with you even during the next song. Maybe you just want to pray. I, I want to invite everyone who's popped up their hand or is feeling a need for prayer that as we sing this next song that we would we would take the opportunity to, to pray with other people. Maybe you nudge the person next to you and say, pray for me if you came with someone. The final group I want to pray for and trust God with is maybe you've been kind of flirting with the idea of trusting Jesus with your life but you just, you've been waiting. Maybe today's your day. Maybe as you sing this song it's a It's a fresh declaration to say, Jesus, I trust you. I I want to live my life with my life in your hands. I don't want to trust me. I want to trust you. As you do that, I would encourage you to make a a strong start to your following of Jesus. I'd encourage you the moment you get a gap, maybe it's to come pray with someone here, but to share it and to begin this journey on a strong footing. Don't hide it. Don't keep it to yourself. Share it with people. We want to walk with you and help you to follow Jesus as best you can. So Jesus, as we move into this time of just singing this song, it's not a song we sing. It's a declaration we make to trust you, to open ourselves to your guidance and your leading. To say a fresh yes to where you've placed us. So that God, our lives, which are saved by your beautiful grace, can be a fresh offering of worship to you. A fresh act of love to you as we look around and see the redemptive possibilities. Have our lives. Have our worship, we pray. Let's sing.